0: Before Apple time, time to begin our Grand Rounds today. Uh, this is always the, uh, the one of the best attended Grand Rounds. When, uh, when, when Joyce uh, uh, tells us she's coming, we know we're going to have a full house. We need to get more coffee, more donuts. Uh, and uh, it's always entertaining and we learn quite a bit. So uh, we're very pleased to have her again. And, and in just a minute, I'm going to ask uh, 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 Sandy Brink to come up and introduce her. Just a couple of announcements. So uh, this Saturday, for those of you Um, who want to come celebrate my birthday (laughs) yeah right Um, I'm just kidding September 28th we have uh, Nancy's kids run Uh, this is a beautiful event that celebrates one of our faculty members who passed away many years ago uh, from cancer and uh, and every year uh, the group of people organize it is a it's a nice 5k uh, uh, that uh, and, and I challenge all of you to beat me for that 5k um, I usually do something like 15 minutes a mile, so I think that hopefully some of you can beat me. Uh, but if, if you can, you can sign up. Dan Fisher is here, and, and there's some brochures, so, so please please attend it. It's just, and it's supposed to be a beautiful day. It's going to be in the, in the high 70s. Very, very nice. So that's just a little announcement. And then um, I, I was going through my calendar, and I found a, a, a quote that I think would be helpful. For us as we get into the wintertime and uh, and of course we are reminded that influenza is coming. Uh, We've had uh, at least one case documented now in the emergency department that I'm aware of. It's The vaccine uh, is is important for us to to begin uh, vaccinating, uh, uh, make sure that all of you who are employed at Connecticut Children's get your vaccine. It is a mandate for, for employment and I think we'll be doing that very shortly. So the quote says, even if you have a lot of work to do, if you think of it as wonderful, and if you feel as wonderful, it will transform into the energy and joy on fire instead of becoming a burden. So uh, think of your workday today as something that will give you some energy. I see Mel is laughing and smiling over there. So that's actually very good. Are you, uh, she's moving her hands when it's very excellent. So without further ado, I'm going to ask uh, Nancy Brink to uh, come up. She's uh, one of our clinical risk managers and introduce Joyce as she prepares to give us her grand rounds of managing refusal and recommended care. Thank
1: Good morning. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Today, I have the pleasure of announcing a friend of Connecticut Children's, attorney Joyce Lagneese. She serves a co-managing principal and head of medical malpractice defense unit. Ms. Lagneese has over 30 years of experience defending medical practices throughout the state of Connecticut and within the Department of Public Health. Each year, the risk management department seeks to find the medical legal topic that is currently affecting (sighs) Connecticut Children's. This year, Ms. Lagnis is here to speak with all of us on the topic of refusal of care. She'll share the information on the legal framework regarding the right to refuse care, identify circumstances that do not require consent, and describes strategies for patients um, or parents that refuse care. Please help me in welcoming Joyce Lagneese. Thank you, folks. It's always a pleasure to be here. And um, one of the reasons I love doing this is because I, spent, I devote quite a bit of time in researching the topic at hand. And I was actually quite fascinated by uh, this particular topic. Um, didn't realize how prevalent it was and how challenging some of these circumstances are. Um, so managing, how to manage patient refusal of recommended care. Um, And parental refusal of recommended care for children is becoming increasingly prevalent due to religious beliefs, uh, parents' personal beliefs. There's an onslaught of uh, embracing of holistic medicine. Um, There's distrust of of big pharma. Um, The internet is, is running the show for many families. Um, and, and it's amazing to me how um, how people believe anything that they see on the internet. Fava beans curing cancer, that's where they'll go. It's becoming incredible um, how much the internet is driving decision-making, cultural beliefs, and even cost of treatment. We've actually had circumstances in the ED where parents refused care because of the costs associated with it. So we're gonna talk about the legal framework um, governing parental consent and refusal of care, how to manage it, clinical, I'm gonna walk you through several clinical scenarios in which parental refusal of care presented significant challenges for providers, very common in the the manner of blood products, um, treatment that's necessary to optimize care, treatment necessary to prevent serious harm, and we're gonna touch on vaccines. We're gonna review the Connecticut Children's Policy related to informed refusal, and, um, and then we'll walk through sort of some strategies that should be of assistance in managing circumstances where parents refuse consent to care. So we all are aware of the general rule, P- parental consent is required for treatment of minors, okay? But what happens if parents refuse care that you know to be in the child's best interest? And it comes down to a balancing of the rights of parents to control the care that's administered to their children Um, balanced by the well-being of children. And parents and and guardians, when I use the word parents, it's synonymous with, with legal guardians, have the legal right to make care and treatment decisions for minor children. It is their absolute right under the law. But that is balanced by the legal obligation that parents have. To provide the care, guidance, and control necessary for the child's physical, educational, moral, and emotional well-being. So they have the right and they have an obligation. And the question is, and it comes up in separate, unique, individual circumstances, how that right and those obligations become balanced. And I want to touch on, because I get asked this question all the time. Uh, who has the consent authority in the context of divorce, okay? And uh, folks seem, to, many people are of the misconception that if a parent shows up with a child in my office, they therefore have, at least at that time, physical custody of the child and therefore can make decisions for the child. That is wrong, okay? What drives the consent authority in the context of divorce is what's called legal custody, And legal custody is determined by a court or by agreement of the parties in connection with a divorce, and it becomes embodied in the divorce decree, which is something that if you engage or encounter circumstances where there's lack of clarity as to who has the authority to make decisions for the child, you have the absolute right to request the divorce decree. A parent who has sole legal custody is the parent that has the sole right to make health care decisions. If the parents share joint legal custody, either parent alone may consent to a recommended medical procedure. Unless the uh, court order, the divorce decree, that addresses the subject of joint legal custody specifies that one or the other have Uh, or or both parents are required for medical decisions. Most divorce decrees nowadays have joint legal custody, which is often very distinct from physical custody. Physical custody is who the child lives with. Legal custody is who gets to make decisions, legal and medical for the child. So it's important that you be aware of what the dynamic is uh, when you're dealing with children of divorced parents. If parents have joint legal custody, and cannot agree about treatment, uh, it may be necessary to obtain a court order before treatment is provided. The only uh, circumstance where court order is not necessary is if you're dealing with an emergency circumstance. Emergencies uh, have a special place in consent, and I'm going to touch on that in, in a second. So, again, the, the, the uh, moral of this story is if you have any question about who has the right to make decisions, treatment decisions, be sure that you. And it's, and it's not uncommon for parents to be asked that. They are given the divorce decree and they have access to it and they can provide it to you. And if they are not willing to provide it to you, you should become suspicious. Um, so, the exceptions to the rule that parents have consent authority are as follows emergency circumstances where a parent is not available to give consent and where a delay in treatment would be life-threatening or cause serious harm. Now, that determination is typically made uh, in the heat of the moment, and it's a judgment call, Okay, So um, and, and not that it's common for such an occurrence that the administration of care to be challenged, it's really important that if you do undertake care in an emergency circumstance, that you thoroughly document the nature of the emergency, that your judgment was that delaying treatment would be life-threatening or cause serious harm. The other risk management advice I would offer is that while you're tending to the patient, be sure someone is trying to get hold of the parents because it's important that reasonable efforts be made. That's what sort of the standard is. Reasonable efforts to contact the parents. That's not always easy because sometimes you don't even know who the parents are and there's ambiguity as to who the guardian is because parents show up in the emergency department um, with all different sorts of scenarios, the uncle, the sister, the brother, the grandmother. Um, so, so, So it's important that you document the efforts that were undertaken to obtain parental consent uh, and the dynamics surrounding the emergency that caused you to believe that it was in the best interest of the child to move forward. Then we get to the emancipated minor, and we we'll to go through what an emancipated minor is. Uh, thirdly, a minor determined by a court to be a mature minor. Now, the distinction between an emancipated minor and a mature minor is generally this. Emancipated minors, typically Uh, The the, the child or the parent, by the way, those of you with adolescent uh, children at home, stay tuned. Listen in. A parent can seek emancipation of a minor. I I didn't appreciate that. In fact, most of the cases that I found were parents seeking to get rid of the kid. Uh, I couldn't find a Connecticut case where the court allowed a parent to disassociate from their minor child. But parents have tried it. But an emancipated minor, typically, the dynamic with emancipated minors is where there's a, uh, a, a, you know, a, a estrangement in the relationship between the parent and the child. And that typically occurs unrelated to medical care. It's the parents who hate the child, and the child is unruly, and they won't listen, and they don't come home, and et cetera. Those are the emancipation issues. And typically, the patient will present to you already emancipated. It's not a situation you have to encourage the child to become emancipated, they typically already are. Mature minor. Dynamic on the other hand, typically arises specifically in the context of a child wanting to make their own healthcare decision, where either the parent doesn't agree with it and the child wants it, um, or vice versa. And we actually had that at Connecticut Children's, the Inri Cassandra C case, um, and we'll touch on that in a second. And, And finally, there are a series of circumstances that are set forth in Connecticut law that are exceptions where where the legislature has decided that under these circumstances, and I'm gonna go through them with you, minors do not have to have consent, and in some cases, don't even have to notify the parent that they're seeking this type of care. And here are some of those circumstances. Treatment for drug and alcohol addiction, uh, addiction. Parents need not be notified or consent. Treatment for venereal disease. Treatment of a minor's own minor child. Typically, if a minor has a minor child, that sort of automatically qualifies them as emancipated, um, but not always. Um, HIV or AIDS-related testing if, and this is where documentation comes in, the provider determines that notifying the parents will result in a denial of treatment, or the minor will not seek, pursue, or continue treatment if the parent or guardian is notified, and the minor requests that the parent or guardian not be notified. So you have to walk through, if you're under these circumstances, you need to walk through those uh, uh, determining factors and document that those determining factors apply in the context of this particular child. Outpatient mental health treatment. okay. Outpatient mental health treatment can be administered to a minor without consent or notification of a parent. If, here's your documentation template, notification of the parent would cause the child to reject treatment, the treatment needs to be clinically indicated, failure to treat would be seriously detrimental to the minor's well-being. The minor has to have knowingly and voluntarily sought treatment, and the provider needs to have determined that the minor is mature enough to participate in treatment productively. A child 14 or over may be admitted to the hospital for diagnosis and treatment of a mental disorder if the child consents in writing and the parent's notified. There's a distinction between outpatient. Outpatient, the parents need not be notified. Okay, as long as the criteria are met. Inpatient, uh, the parents, the the child is the only, the parents don't need to consent. The child consents, the parents need to be notified. And abortion, uh, minors can have abortion without notification or Consent by parents. There's a there's a statute. If you're engaged in this, you need to read the statute because there's an entire uh, algorithm of of counseling that is required that patient minor patients be engaged in before they are permitted to have to consent to an abortion. So emancipation, any 16 or 17 year old living in Connecticut or his parents or guardian. Wish I knew this when my kids were adolescents. Oh, <laughs> Can file a petition asking a judge to declare him a—that's am- a joke. I have my kids are great. <laughs> They're fantastic. Uh, the court has to give the child's parents or legal guardian notice, and they order both the parents and the child to attend a hearing. And the statutory grounds for emancipation, marriage, even if the. Child is since divorced, active U.S. military service. The child is living apart from their parents and is managing their own financial affairs. And this is the one that the cases center on. Good cause showing that emancipation is in the best interest of the minor or the minor's parents. Interesting. Uh, I can tell you, though, that for those of you that are giving consideration to this with your unruly children, um, trust me, they, they, they come back to you after a while. They do. They, they come back it's like they go and then they come back so just just relax be patient um, no court in the state of Connecticut has ever granted a parental petition for emancipation and there's a case there's a reported case I didn't because it's I had so much to cover where the the poor judge who ordered who refused to order emancipation went through the parade of horribles that this brat was imposing on his parents. I mean, criminal and just disruptive. It was just awful. And he commiserated and, and you know, said, yes, parenting is hard. And <laughs> we, we are, but you have real obligation. The, 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 are they better off being stuck with the parent and the parent being stuck with the kid than the kid out on their own? And the courts um, come down. So, um, but children who have sought emancipation, have been granted emancipation. So, um, but they'll have an order, and you're not going to let a, a, a child consent who claims they're emancipated without seeing their emancipation order. So then we have the mature minor. <laughs> this is so touchy-feely, it's sort of hard to define. But a mature minor is a minor who has established to a court that they are mature enough to make medical decisions on their own, whatever that means. Connecticut, the, the, the mature minor issue has come up in many, many dozens of cases around the country. And some states have actually adopted, formally adopted the doctrine of the mature minor. Connecticut has not done that, and, and, um, but is very likely to do it. Because in the Cassandra C. case, that I'll talk to you about in a minute, they engaged in a several page analysis of whether that child what had um, met the criteria for a mature minor? They refused to formally adopt the doctrine because they found that she did not meet the criteria for a mature minor, and therefore decided that they didn't need to decide because they didn't have a circumstance where they were going to grant it. And and courts courts generally do not decide things that they do not have to decide. Okay, um, so. But here is what the factors, and and notwithstanding that they didn't decide it, they went in the opinion, articulated what the factors that they would consider in determining whether a particular child was a mature minor. Age, ability, experience, education, training, degree of maturity. How did the court determine that? Conduct and demeanor of the minor. Whether the minor has the capacity to appreciate the nature risks and consequences of the medical procedure. Because these mature minor cases always arise in a circumstance where A minor wants care that the parents don't want them to have, or minor doesn't want care that the parents want them to have. And then there's a hearing, and the court takes testimony. They hear from the child. They hear from the parents. They hear from the physicians. And then some judge determines, exercises their judgment as to whether this child, and that judgment of whether someone is a mature minor, it can be appealed, but usually, Uh, appellate courts will defer to the judgment that's made by the trial court that actually heard the witness observe their demeanor. Uh, So when it happens, um, they have the right to consent or decline care. So there have been many challenging clinical scenarios here, and there's two categories, and and the, the legal dynamics associated with them are very different. There's where a parent refuses recommended care that would optimize a child's well being, okay, or parental refusal of care that is necessary to avoid life threatening consequences. Okay, and sometimes, and the challenge arises because sometimes these aren't so clear cut, life threatening consequences can result from chronic failure to optimize a child's well being. But typically, the courts are much more inclined to. Press for treatment when there's an imminent risk. Risk of, I mean, it, uh, so they, they present two very, very distinct dynamics. And we'll, we're going to walk through what the legal um, situation is. Now, the legal framework is primarily determined by common law. There are two ways that laws, that, that, that um, things become law, one is statutory, that's where the legislature writes out a law and it's the law but more importantly most laws derive from what's called common law and that's that goes back to the like the 1700s where law that derived from custom and judicial precedent that's why you hear you know if you follow stuff we won't get into that um, <laughs> there's there's statutory law the written down laws and there's common law now, statutory laws are interpreted by judges. So judges are very, very powerful because they get, not only do they get to interpret what the statute says, but they get to decide what the common law is or should be. But that tends to be based on what's on legal precedent. That's why this whole thing about whether, whether the judges are gonna follow legal precedent or make their own law. So the, and it's, 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 um, it's, So common law is what drives this dynamic. So I want to first acquaint you, just to give you an appreciation for how the Connecticut Supreme Court views the issue of consent over one's body. This is the landmark Connecticut Supreme Court case decision relating to refusal of life-saving care. 1996, and it's still good law in Connecticut, Stanford Hospital versus Nellie Vega. The patient experienced a postpartum hemorrhage following delivery of a healthy baby. Physician recommended DNC to stop the bleeding. The patient was a Jehovah's Witness and consented to the DNC, but refused to consent to a blood transfusion. The DNC was performed. Um, following it, the patient continued to hemorrhage. The physicians tried all available alternatives to the use of blood, but the patient's condition continued to worsen. Of course, she went on to develop respiratory distress, was placed on a ventilator, and was transferred to the ICU. The patient and her husband were aware throughout this entire <laughs> time period that she would likely die without a blood transfusion. But they maintain that it was against their religious beliefs to allow the use of blood. At 2 a.m., now you can imagine how frantic the providers are. They're watching this woman die before their eyes and they know that simple blood transfusion would save her life. So At 2 a.m., the hospital files a request with I have no idea how they got a request at 2 a.m. This is a nine to five judiciary, let me tell you. (laughs) But Somehow they got a request filed with the court for an injunction permitting the hospital to administer blood. 3.52, the trial court convened an emergency hearing at the hospital. The physician testified that she would die without a transfusion. Um, The wife was an extremist, and she was unable to participate in the hearing. So the husband continued to support the wife's decision and the husband supported the wife's decision. So there was no consent for the transfusion. The court granted the hospital's request for an injunction permitting the transfusion. Now when courts make rulings, they have to have a reason, they have to have a rationale and they have to state what the rationale is. And the court's rationale for allowing the transfusion against the patient's wishes was, that this, was the state's interest in preserving life And protecting innocent third parties. Okay, this is the newborn who would otherwise be deprived of her mother. The patient was given the blood transfusion, she recovered, she was discharged from the hospital in a healthy condition. So, what does any red blooded American do when a physician just saved their life? Appeal to the Supreme Court. Okay? (laughs) <laughs> Wait a minute. You're alive. The transfusion's already been performed. What's the Supreme Court going to do now? And in fact, the Supreme Court, and they pursue the Supreme Court on what's called a writ of certiorari. It's, it's, the Supreme Court doesn't have to take the case. It's discretionary. And so when you submit a writ of cert to the Supreme Court, you explain to them why it is you think they should take this case. And you will tell them that this, the, the, our state needs to know what the rules are, because you have this conflict. The doctors saved her life. The parent didn't want her life saved. Because I looked up the Jehovah Witness thing. I don't know any Jehovah Witnesses. But their view is if they get blood, they are doomed to hell. Their afterlife is over. I mean, it's a powerful religious belief. And um, so the Supreme Court decided to grant the writ. And the reason was to provide guidance to healthcare providers, trial judges, and others who may be required to decide, invariably in urgent circumstances, whether routine life saving medical treatment may be administered to an. They didn't say this. This isn't a DNR circumstance, okay? That's totally different. We're talking about a healthy person who had a complication of pregnancy, who's in her 20s, who has a brand new baby, who's gonna die if she doesn't get a blood transfusion. So, uh, so. The Supreme Court decided that the trial court's order preventing the hospital to transfuse her against her will violated her common law right to bodily self determination. Okay, that is how powerful the right to make decisions is in our state. So you say to yourself, what does this mean for children of Jehovah Witnesses? Okay. And this has come up hundreds of times around the country. There's hundreds of decisions on these. What if the child refusing treatment is an adolescent or teen who understands the risks and consequences of her decision not to have a blood transfusion? A lot of Jehovah Witness children are applying to be mature minors in order to make their own decision with respect to the, the receipt. They are, they are embedded in their religious belief. Um, and we've had these cases. Well, here's sort of the guiding principle. Parents may be free to become martyrs themselves, but it does not follow that they are free in identical circumstances to make martyrs of their children before they have reached the age of full and legal discretion when they can make that choice for themselves. There's been a lot of commentary about how children in some of these cultures, and it's not just Jehovah Witnesses, in different cultures are sort of isolated and, and they're, very, they're not permitted to be exposed to other perspectives and points of view. And, and, and that won't happen. Sometimes it doesn't happen at all, but it certainly won't happen until they reach the age of majority when they're out in the world. And, and so the sentiment is we can't allow children who have not, you know, who've been cloistered in a culture or in a religious belief, who haven't had the opportunity to experience or become aware of other beliefs to be controlled by the parents. And so, in most of the uh, uh, Jehovah Witness cases where it involves a minor, the courts have come down on the side of um, of of some some uh, some way of getting consent, and we're going to walk through a few of those cases. Furthermore, you folks are all mandatory reporters. Okay, and this is kind of interesting. When you when you believe in the course of your profession, have reasonable cause to suspect, reasonable cause to suspect or believe that any minor child has been abused or neglected or is placed at imminent risk of serious physical harm. So there's two. So abused or neglected, placed at imminent risk of serious physical harm. Those are two different things. Is a parent who, uh, who, who says they can't afford asthma medication for their child um, and doesn't buy it? buys two packs of cigarettes a day and a bottle of vodka, is that a neglected child? Uh, I mean, the, this, there's, the, the, the problem with these cases is that the, the slope is slippery. Every case is different. Every provider's threshold for determining what constitutes neglect is different. And that's why we have an ethics committee. That's why most of these issues, when they arise, need to be elevated so that the right call can be made and lots of perspectives can be brought to bear. Because your, uh, your, your oath as physicians is to do no harm and to maximize care. And um, there are a lot of ways to do it before you have to get adversarial with the family. And that's the preferred approach is working with these families so that you don't have to end up in an adversarial dynamic with them because adversarial stuff is terrible. This is what, why lawyers are such a bad name. Many of the lawyers involved, things go to hell in a handbasket. So the goal is to solve these problems uh, really with the families, but that's not always possible. And it's becoming increasingly challenging. And then you have the divorced parents and you have the, so, um, so let's walk through a few clinical scenarios to sort of hammer home some of these concepts. We had a case here, two month old infant required surgery for craniosynostosis, which is a birth defect. Uh, in a baby's skull where the bones join together too early and before the baby's brain is fully formed. And if there isn't surgery, the skull becomes misshapen. That can be brain damage. It's a terrible thing. They have to have surgery basically. But the most severe complication and deaths from the surgery are related to blood loss. Don't happen a lot, but that's when a bad thing happens. That's what it is. And those patients, so the patients with Jehovah Witnesses They declined to sign a consent for the administration of blood products. The surgeon, appropriately, refused to do the surgery without consent for the transfusion if it became necessary. So to complicate matters, the parents lived in Massachusetts. So the Connecticut court did not have jurisdiction over the parents of the child. Uh, So a care and protection petition was filed with the Massachusetts Juvenile Court. The Massachusetts court dismissed the petition, (laughs) claiming that it didn't have jurisdiction because the surgery was going to be in Connecticut. I mean, these things become very cumbersome. Ultimately, we were able to prevail on the um, family to appoint a temporary agent, an uncle, who agreed to be appointed to authorize the administration and transfusion of blood products. Now, this, we call this a workaround, okay? The problem is workarounds are available in circumstances where the parents want their child to have the necessary care but don't want to authorize it themselves due to their religious beliefs. Okay, but some parents, many, believe that voluntarily giving another person authorization to consent is tantamount to doing it themselves, and it's doing them to hell. Um, here's the legal argument that that the uh, that is made: Congress shall make no. This is the U.S. Constitution. This is in there. Congress can make no law, which means no one can do anything. No government authority. Uh, can um, make a law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's what they claim. We are entitled to exercise our religion the way we want, applied to us and to our... And, and here, this is taken from a brief that was filed, an affidavit that was filed in, a, in a, one of these cases. We feel that allowing blood transfusion will be breaking God's commandment and destroying the baby's life for the future, not only in this life. If the baby breaks the commandment and should die, because it wasn't certain that in this case, the baby would survive even with a transfusion. Not only does it destroy our chances, but also the baby's chances for a future life. We feel it is more important than this life. I mean, that's a challenge. That's their belief. So the way we circumvent, if we can't get a workaround, then there's what's called parens patriae jurisdiction. And it's Latin for something, but essentially what it means is the government, there's this doctrine permits the government to take over as the legal protector of its citizens. It's the doctrine that allows the state to act as the surrogate parent when necessary to protect the life and health of children. And under this doctrine, the state can assume temporary custody for the purpose of authorizing medical care under a claim of medical neglect. You, private healthcare providers can't assert the parens patriae interests. Okay, you, you don't have the right to go to court and say, I have a patient who is being neglected and parents are refusing necessary care and you don't have that right. You ha- what you do have is standing and standing means the right to assert something. Okay, um, you have standing to invoke the judicial process. In order to get guidance regarding uh, how to manage the, the child's care, including getting a court injunction. That's been a law for a long time. And there's really two pathways to getting relief when you can't get consent for necessary care one is the probate court, and the other is uh, civil court. Okay? So th- this is a clinical scenario that we also have encountered four year old with acute lymphoblastic. Leukemia, which is an aggressive bone marrow malignancy, very poor prognosis without treatment. Treatment requires chemo, which causes myelosuppression, that you manage with blood products. So they needed authority to, uh, uh, to administer blood products. So in this situation, what happens, and this is one pathway, the, you make a referral. A referral is made by the provider or the hospital to DCF, the Department of Children and Families. And if it meets the criteria for neglect... And, and, Sometimes they, won't, they can't determine it until they intervene, get the records, talk to the family. But DCF then filed a petition for immediate temporary custody with the probate court in Stanford. And then there's a hearing where the parents testify, the doctors testify, yada, yada, and the probate court awarded immediate temporary custody to a lawyer. There was not a family member. This probably immunized. So, so the family didn't want to voluntarily allow it. But if the court orders it, then the view is maybe they won't be doomed to hell because they had no control. So that's the, uh, the legal work right? and we had the Cassandra C case. This was, um, for those of you that weren't here in 2014, we had a 17 year old who was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, terminal if untreated, greater than 98% uh, cure with treatment, patient lived with a mother, you know, kind of a dysfunctional dynamic. The father was estranged. Both the mother and the child refused treatment. Um, the family wanted to pursue homeopathic treatment. So uh, there was a referral to DCF. Um, this is the case where the Connecticut Supreme Court refused to recognize Cassandra C.'s right to make independent health care decisions because she was not, she didn't meet criteria for a mature minor. So she was taken into, this is a very challenging time. Those of us who were around, we'll recall it. She was taken into DCF custody. She was sequestered to the hospital for treatment. She basically was in lockdown. Um, she was allowed to return home on, the con- on condition that she agreed to treatment. She returned to the hospital, but she eloped after two days. Um, she was finally convinced to come back to the hospital. This was national news. Um, just not, this is, love, love the media. Just nine months from her 18th birthday, a Connecticut girl is fighting against forced chemo. You know, I mean, please. Connecticut teenager with cancer, loses court fight to refuse chemotherapy. I mean, think about this. (laughs) This is a girl who's gonna die, we're saving her life, and this is how the media, oh dear, this is her words. This experience has been a continuous nightmare. I want the right to make my medical decisions. It's disgusting that I'm fighting for a right that I and anyone in my situation should already have. Out of the mouth of a 16, 17 year old. Um, I mean, that's what, a, that's what you would expect a 17, 17 year olds are the ones that wanna be able to have a curfew at 2 a.m., okay? This is the judgment. I mean, you know, it's this, and I think we're gonna see more of this. I think we're gonna see more of this because of the, the nature of the young people today. They know everything. They're smarter than the older people. It's incredible. <laughs> You know, everything, I get these, I get these young lawyers, I'm I was at an oral argument yesterday in, in Waterbury with a lawyer, she's like 30 years old. She, I don't think she's ever tried a case. And my God, I, there's no respect for elders anymore, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. So then, to make matters worse, she had a recurrence, okay? Which is which is Connecticut team forced by courts to undergo chemo? Says new mass is found. This is why I fought so hard against chemo. This is what you're up against. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Okay, but we do the right thing. At the end of the day, we do what collectively we determine and come to know is the right thing. Now. Uh, Imagine letting this child die. Well, imagine the medical legal risk. So anyway, I don't make these cases up. Now this, this is a fascinating case. This is a parents refusing dialysis for a three month old with renal failure. And for those of you that are interested in this, there was a, 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 this was, this case was published in Pediatrics March of 2018. And it raised the issue of how burdensome does a treatment have to be for us to decide that it's ethically optional. Three-month-old boy failure to thrive was referred to a nephrology clinic after a workup revealed a serum uh, u- ner- serum urea nitrogen level 95, creatinine of 3.6. Renal ultrasound revealed marked bilateral hydronephrosis, little remaining renal cortex in either kidney. Um, essentially, the kid had, was, had total uh, breakdown, no kidney function, no evident comorbidities. This was was an isolated issue. Fulguration of the valves was successfully performed, but did not lead to improvement in kidney function. The nephrologists recommended initiation of chronic peritoneal dialysis, followed by kidney transplant at a later date. The prospects of survival and an eventual kidney transplant were excellent. The family requested several days to discuss the situation. They returned two days later and stated that they did not want the child to suffer a lifetime of dialysis and transplant care. They were also concerned about the impact of the child's illness on their other two children and on the family. The family requested that their son be provided with palliative care only. This is a toughie. Uh, So this presented an ethical dilemma for the providers. The care team was optimistic about the child's likely outcome and found it difficult to contemplate palliative care. The opinion of the Hospital Ethics Committee was sought before a final decision was made. There was intensive discussion and analysis with pediatric nephrologists, bioethics, critical care folks. I mean, they analyzed the literature to find the, the answer. I mean, so these were the topics that were discussed during the ethics review to determine the, what, the right way to go. The success rates of dialysis during infancy. The incidence of peritonitis, in other words, how, how sick was this kid gonna get? Uh, how many medical visits and hospitalizations were gonna be involved? Um, what would the time commitment by the care providers be? Financial, emotional, psychological, social strain. The impact on household income, studies uh, of this issue, I, I mean, I guess this happens, that uh, typically one caregiver must give up their job to be home full time. I mean, there are realities to these things and the question is to what extent do you take into account the best interests of the child versus the best interests of the family the incidence of depression among caregivers in this clinical circumstance there was survey data that they identified half 50% of the nephrologists would give the parents the option to refuse treatment and 50% wouldn't this is no right or wrong answer there's no cookbook for this stuff this is The the stuff, the the hard stuff. So, again, are we talking about what's in the child's best interest or what's in the family's best interest? And to what extent do you take the family's best interest into account? The ethics committee, they came down to, there were three perspectives. And the article has the commentary by the different folks. It's really very, I mean, it's honor the parent's decision was one view. Have the ethics committee make a decision, and the care providers would just defer to the ethics committee, you know, punt to them, um, or seek medical foster care to avoid the medically indicated treatment while still respecting the parents' interests, the family interests. Anybody want to know what they did? I'm not telling. I will tell you, but there was a, um, in 1983, this issue comes up by NICU providers all the time. You know, when do we save a, a baby's life? And there was a report issued by the President's Commission for the Study of Ethical Problems in Medicine, and they offered a framework for categorizing treatment for seriously ill newborns that isn't directly on point here, but sort of gives you some Uh, where treatment is clearly beneficial, it should be provided even if the parents do not consent. It's clearly futile, it should not be provided even if the parents want it, though those are challenging. If the outcome is ambiguous or uncertain, the parents should be the final determiners. Um, So how does that sort of relate to our situation? Well, the treatment will be clearly beneficial, I guess, but the outcome, what do you take into consideration the outcome? The outcome to the child or the outcome to the whole family unit? The, um, so the, the next order of business is to uh, work with the family. And what they did in this context is they had the family speak to other families that had managed patients with, that had, you know, children and and gotten them through uh, dialysis and the rigors of dialysis, and then had a transplant and the rigors of the transplant. Because sometimes what the parade of horribles you think isn't necessarily what's gonna ensue. And not only that, they're gonna grow to love this child to death. And so um, it's, and that was one strategy. The other was to present them with data showing that these things could be overcome, social services that could that they could access in order to get the you know the respite care they need and and, and get what they need so that they can get themselves through this, um, you know, support groups. And it was uh, you know it was they, they did what they could. I, my understanding is that they the parents ended up uh, that they deferred to the parents. It's 50-50, when you have 50-50. So, fortunately, most parents, well, I I say that, I don't really have the data on it, but according to the nephrology, 50% of parents reject it. So how do we manage these circumstances? Um, You know, we start by fully educating the parents about the benefits of treatment, and the risk of no treatment elicit. This is really important because sometimes the parents' reasons for refusing care can be overcome. And so being identifying what the reasons are for refusing care and discussing those with the parents to see if they can be negotiated in a way that, that satisfies the parents' concerns but gets the child the care they need. And you know, these are, these are um, and, and the other key is having the right people in the room that is often critical the right family members in the room the leaders in the family to help them process this okay are there influential family members therapists clergies you know who the family's engaged with who might help the parent reconsider his or her refusal and family members who will then uh, agree to assist in the effort to manage the challenging clinical dynamic um, consider a referral to a social worker, which we have social workers on staff for additional support for the family to talk things through before you would allow a child who would otherwise have a reasonable life to forgo that life. You, you need to talk to somebody who can work with you because there's an emotional fallout from not allowing the child to live that is also very profound. And before making these decisions, you, you want the, the family to have all, Support they need. Again, if the concern is burden to them with a family or economic, you know, there's lots of support services that are available. And then you've got to document your efforts uh, to educate the patient, the necessity, the potential consequences, that you have offered all these things, whether they have accepted them or rejected them. Um, and we have, there's a written policy. I'm not going to, I mean, anytime you are confronted with one of these issues, uh, you know, check out the policy, which just goes through the requirements. And we actually have a, a, um, a templated informed refusal form. It's very important that patients uh, who refuse care and parents who refuse care on behalf of their patients, that that is very, very carefully documented, very thoroughly documented. This is just a copy of the informed. And there's an ethics committee. Um, and the purpose of the ethics committee is to deal with these dilemmas and to help you, your colleagues, the families work through these. Um, and the indications for consultation with the ethics decisions involving ethical ambiguity, in which case review might provide insight into complex ethical, moral, legal, emotional issues. Um, disagreement, when there's disagreement between care providers or between the provider and the patient and families, that's what the committee is there to help work through. And then decisions that involve withholding or withdrawing life-sustaining treatment. Um, I want to touch on, we're getting close to to, um, to the end here, but I've got to touch on vaccines because it's crazy. Um, I, well, I say crazy, but, you know, um, so talk about damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, there was a case recently where a parent refused vaccine for her infant. The infant later died of overwhelming pneumococcal sepsis from a strain of the vaccine. Parents sues the physician. At trial, both of Parent and the physician acknowledged that the vaccine was recommended, but the parent stated that the risk of death wasn't mentioned during the discussion, okay? This is why the details of the consent are so important. And then it's a he said, she said, and I don't know that the provider mentioned death, Um, but the parent testified as they always do, if they'd only told me, then I would have, that there was a one in nine million chance of death I, I wouldn't have consented. Plaintiff got a verdict, failure to provide to warn of the risk of death. So just be sure that you got all of it covered. And we know why. The, the, I mean, this is documented. Religious reasons, personal beliefs, safe concerns. I have a friend who honestly believes her son's autism was caused by and But, but she'll say he was fine to have the and then completely changed. There's no other place for her head to go. They question the necessity and, and the trauma from multiple injections. And let me show you what the Connecticut Supreme Court, this is a, a case that I just thought would be useful. Uh, there was a, In April of 2016, there was a neglect petition filed as to two children ages one and two. They'd been living with their parents out of a minivan or found filthy, smelling of urine, and covered with multiple bruises. The DCF sort of ex parte order of, ex parte means without the other side. So the DCF went to a court and said things are so bad, we don't even have time to get the parents in. So they, the, um, they, they got temporary custody and then they hold a hearing later. Hearing was held in August, the parents didn't contest the neglect allegations and agreed to commit the children temporarily to the care and custody of the commissioner, commissioner DCF. At the hearing, the parties advised the court that the parents on the basis of their sincerely held religious beliefs objected to vaccination of the children for common childhood diseases. And it's the Department of Children's practice for children in their custody to administer the recommended vaccines to children. Parents made a motion seeking to prevent the vaccination. The commissioner objected. The DCF presented testimony to the court about the medical importance of vaccinations and the few number of physicians who will even treat unvaccinated children. The mother testified about her religious beliefs. In January, the trial court issued a memorandum that granted the commissioner petition, uh, permission to vaccinate the children. Seemed like the right thing to me. Parents appeal to the Connecticut Supreme Court claiming that the commissioner doesn't have authority to vaccinate the children because vaccinations are not medical treatment. And the DCF only has authority to administer care that is medical treatment, okay? They say medical treatment is defined as the steps taken to cure an injury or disease. The commissioner contended that the plain language of the statute very simply gives the commissioner the authority to provide medical treatment to children consistent with the child's best interests. When deemed in the best interest of the child and the custody of the commissioner. Okay. And this is in the statute to ensure the continued good health or life of the child seems to apply The statute doesn't have a definition. Usually statutes have a definition section. And then the definitions are applied to the statutory language. So they looked to the comp- They went to the American Heritage College Dictionary. Honest to God, this is the Supreme Court. Okay, fourth edition, 2007, defines treatment as the administration or application of remedies to a patient for a disease or injury. Commissioner went to the American Heritage Dictionary, the fifth edition, <laughs> which defines treatment as an attempt to cure or mitigate a disease, condition, or injury. Then they went to the dictionary and says, mitigate. This is is how it goes. Mitigate is to make or become milder, less severe, less rigorous, or less painful. Supreme Court held that the statute does not authorize the commissioner to vaccinate children without parental consent, because vaccines do not constitute medical treatment under the statute Authorizing the state to obtain medical.
2: <laughs>
1: Your government at work. <laughs> Where does Connecticut stand on vaccinations? Well, we're 100 schools are below the 95% federal guideline. You know, we do have one of the highest immunization rates. Um, this is a problem. I, I mean, I've only got four minutes left and I want to have questions. So, um, you guys know all about vaccines. Any questions? Thank you.
0: Thank you, Joyce. Always uh, entertaining. Don't leave because time oh. pl- there will be plenty of questions, I'm sure. We have about four minutes, so please use the microphones.
1: Hi, thank you very much for that presentation. Um, So I'm a child abuse pediatrician and of course DCF is involved frequently in our Mm -hmm. cases and sometimes they take an order of temporary custody which gives them physical custody but does not make them legal guardian or give them any medical decision-making rights. And I just wanted to clarify, make sure that I understand that the whole concept of parents patriae is something that has to be decided in a court, correct? DCF cannot exercise that principle themselves outside uh, court order. That's correct. Either okay. in court or through the probate court. A uh, court. Well, that's a court too. But the probate system is different from. But you're right. DCF doesn't have the uh, the authority to make the medical decisions. They have the authority. Normally, what they do is they find out what the what the provider thinks is in the best interest of the child, and then they advocate that through the court. Through the court. Yeah. that's how it works. Yep.
2: Good morning. Thank you again. Uh, In what kind of circumstances uh, neglect will be applied? Uh, For example, uh, this child was deemed to have a high risk to have malaria after he came back from Nigeria Uh, and the family was with the patient but they rejected any uh, evaluation in the hospital or transfer and they went home Uh, against medical advice. So the patient was in high risk of dying from malaria. Was the physician in charge at that time called DCF and say, look, I'm afraid that if the patient leaves uh, and uh, it was at midnight or called the police or what do you recommend uh, to do at that time?
1: I would not engage the police because they wouldn't have any power. I think if in your judgment, a patient is at risk of harm, if they don't receive medical treatment, then the right recourse is DCF. Now DCF doesn't necessarily take temporary custody. The beauty of DCF is they will make the determination as to whether it rises to the level that that, uh, justifies them taking temporary custody so you if you are concerned then you can call dcf explain to them the circumstances i have called dcf and they've said to me no we wouldn't take that type of case Mm -hmm. so you'll learn whether they'll take it or not um you can't go to court you can't the tension is is the adverse impact on the doctor patient relationship so that's what you have to also balance If, if you're if this is a patient who you have a relationship with then you are more likely to be able to work with the patient to get them to do the right thing. That's step one. Get the patient to do, the, let them, my mother had malaria, that's terrible.
2: So the thing is, <laughs> a, is a cultural, is in addition, it's a cultural problem because uh, parents that are from Africa, uh, they don't see that happening in their home countries. They do not get admitted to the hospital uh, on a regular basis. So when they come here and the children are sick, right? they find it like is out of the ordinary. So the answer is two ways. If DCF says we hold him in the, on the hospital, we're okay. But if, are, if the DCF says we cannot take care of the case, you let the patient go?
1: Well, if, if DCF won't take the case, you don't have the authority to, to do it. So I think that, that, I, don't think that ob, I don't think that relieves you of the obligation to try to work with the family to get them to do the right thing as best you can. I, I mean, there's only so you got, it's reasonable efforts. If they sign the informed refusal form and you've told them what the potential consequences are and it's documented in your chart and they say no, and if there isn't someone who's, who you know who's culturally you know, in, their, in their culture who could talk with them or influence them, you've done all you can. They have the, if DCF doesn't see fit to advance the interest of the child and you can't convince the parent to, then that's the way it is. Yes. In the event of a minor requesting treatment and not to have parents informed, how do you manage the insurance bill and parents learning because they receive a bill? Oh dear! I wish you had sent that to me in advance. I have no idea. I have no idea how you would handle the. I think. <laughs> I think under those circumstances, that that would have to be addressed with the child. I don't think that you you. I. That's a challenge, especially if it's a big bill. I, so how do you how do you deal with it?
2: Uh, you have to explain to parents.
0: You have to explain to the uh, child that the typical thing is you're going to do some uh, venero disease testing,
2: mm-hmm.
0: okay? And you're going to do GC and chlamydia. And what I do is tell them we do it on everybody, okay? And if something happens, the parents ask. I say, I'd do it on everybody for well visit or for, for mm-hmm. this scenario. Not that I think your daughter or son is doing something inappropriately, but it, the bill comes. And it's listed right down there now. Fortunately, most parents don't look for the details of the bill, so they may miss it, but <laughs> it does come. It's, it's, a, it's a very common effect.
1: Yeah, but if you, if you agree to do the general disease testing at the request of a child and parental consent is not required uh, and the child um, is counting on you to maintain that confidentiality, as is their right, you can't put that in the medical chart.
0: Correct, but they get the bill at home. The bill goes home. If you just so, like you. Yeah. No, actually, so we, we have this happen quite often in, in the HIV yeah. clinic. We have 15, 16-year-olds that come in for treatment. And when that happens, we, you know, basically we we pay for the bill. I mean, the, these, absorb we, we absorb it. We don't send, in, in those situations, we, we, end, we generate a bill, but it goes to you know, I'll send it to your, to your office, Doug, and who will come. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, yeah, but it, it's, it doesn't. You know, know. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, send it to you know, my you know, office you know, now, because so, I'm not there. Well, anyways, <laughs> uh, uh, it's 9.03, so I'm going to, we, we need to stop, but Joyce will be here for a few minutes if you want to ask her specific questions. Thank you very much. Okay. You. You're welcome. Excellent, as always. Very, oh. very nice, very good.
1: good.